You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Last weekend, I, uh, I went and saw, the, or uh, we rented and, and saw the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Have you seen this movie? I uh, saw, finally saw it. Uh, it's the story of uh, Walt Disney uh, trying to convince uh, P.L. Travers, who, who's the author of the Mary Poppins stories, uh, to sell the screen rights to her stories uh, so that Disney could make Mary Poppins into a movie. And at the beginning uh, of Saving uh, Mr. Banks, um, P.L. Travers, uh, I guess attorney or agent, uh, is trying to, to convince her to sell the screen rights. She, he's, he's saying, you know, we're, you're not selling enough books and you're about to run out of money. And as soon as he mentions money, she just has this emotional reaction. And, and she says, stop saying money. It is a filthy, disgusting word. Come to find out, when she was a little girl, her dad was an unsuccessful banker. And uh, when she was little, he used to tell her... Uh, to beware of money. And he would say, you know, money, money, money. Don't you buy into it. It'll bite you on the bottom. And that's what he would tell her. And that, I think, explains her emotional reaction to money later in life. When I saw that, I thought, you know, there's some truth there for us. Because money, indeed, has the real potential to bite us on the bottom in lots of different ways, doesn't it? And money is emotional, If we start talking about money, you may feel all kinds of different emotions come to the surface in your life. Uh, You might feel anything from fear and anxiety uh, to pleasure and satisfaction. Uh, You might feel envy. You might feel discontentment. See, money can make us feel exhilarated on the one hand, but it can make us feel depressed on the other hand. It's emotional, and I think the reason that money is so emotional is that money is so deeply linked are connected to our, to our deepest longings, to our deepest desires, maybe more connected than any other thing in our life. You could say that economics is not so much the study of how money works. Uh, economics is the study of our wants and of our desires, because the flow of money in our life always goes towards our wants, towards our desires, towards our needs. It's the reason American Girl dolls are so much more expensive than regular dolls, other dolls on the market right? Because lots of little girls want them. Lots of little girls think my life will be so much better if I just have one of those. And so money flows to American Girl catalogs, American Girl stores, money flows there to buy dolls, to buy accessories for dolls. Did you know that an outfit for an American Girl doll is sometimes more expensive than an outfit for a real girl? <laughs> like to clothe a piece of plastic with fake hair and fake eyes will cost you more than clothing your own daughter. I'm an expert in this, if you don't notice. Uh, I have three daughters. Money flows that way because that's what these little girls desire. The flow of money in our life just points to our wants, our desires, our longings. You could say the flow of money points to our vision of the good life. What is the good life? For the next four weeks, the four weeks in May, we are going to talk about money uh, as a church. Now, this is not so that we can have some sort of giving campaign, right? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, all right, here we go. Pastor wants to talk about money. I know where this thing is headed, so I'm going to hide my wallet for the next four weeks. Uh, No, this is not so that we can have a giving campaign. Uh, 
although we'll probably talk about giving, we'll probably talk about generosity, it'd be impossible not to and call ourselves Christians. Uh, This is not so that we can spend four weeks looking at all the practical advice in the Bible about, you know, how to debt-free living, you know, or how to save wisely. Although I think we'll get practical at times. Uh, We'll talk about things like debt and saving uh, and spending. Uh, We're going to do this for four weeks because money is is one of the biggest issues uh, in your discipleship uh, to Jesus. Money is an indicator. Uh, It points to something beyond itself. It really points to some of the deepest desires that we have in our life. Desire for comfort, desire for security, desire for success, desire for a good future, desire for impact, desire for freedom. All these things, there's nothing wrong with any of these desires. They're not bad in in and of themselves. They're actually given to us by God. We're created with these desires, but these desires are tainted by the fall. They're distorted. Sin affects them, and we, we go looking in all the wrong places to meet these desires, including we go to money. And so the real question for us is, where are we looking to fulfill our longings and desires? Are we looking to money to do that? Like, do we think the good life can be bought, purchased? Because if we do, Jesus would say to us, you know what, if you think the good life can be bought, then your vision of the good life is anemic, it's weak. You desire far too little. And Jesus wants to disciple us in our desires, especially as they relate to money. But the good thing about Jesus, as always, he doesn't start with the practical. He doesn't start with our wallet or our checkbook. He starts with our heart. And so let's talk about money today and for the next three weeks. Money is not a filthy, disgusting word like P.L. Travers said that it was. Uh, Money is actually amoral. It's, it's morally neutral. Now, what you do with money is not neutral at all. Uh, what you do with money is actually quite spiritual. In fact, Jesus always talked about money in spiritual uh, terms. This is what he said in the um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So this is religious language, right? It's, it's spiritual language. It's master lordship type language. Jesus is putting money on the same playing field uh, with God. And that's because money has, has the potential to have this, this spiritual power in our life. Uh, so, much, so much so that we might bow down and worship it. And I think it has this spiritual power because we connect it to our vision of the good life. And if we buy into this idea that you can, you can acquire the good life, uh, then we'll go after the acquisition of money with everything we've got. We will bow down and serve it. It is spiritual and religious. Here's the scary thing, though. Most of the time, we're blind to its power in our life. Most of us, if we are serving money in some way, we're, we're usually not even aware of it. Almost no one thinks that they're materialistic. Almost no one thinks that they're greedy. Almost no one thinks that they're covetous. No one ever wants to sit down with me as a pastor and say, hey, would you pray for me? I'm really greedy. (laughs) No one ever confesses that sin. We don't see it. We're blind to it. So what would it look like if we were serving money as God in some way? And if we were, how could we change? How could we get out of it? I want to look at this little interaction 
in Matthew 19 that Jesus has with this young man and uh, see if we can glean a few things for ourselves from it. Um, This young man could be any of us, and and in some ways, he does represent all of us. And so, turn to Matthew 19, if you're not there already, and and let's look at it. Uh, Just a little background on Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew deals very much with the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom like? How do you enter it? What is citizen, how do citizens of the kingdom live? And so the kingdom of God, or as Jesus calls it often in, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, um, would be the highest vision of the good life that you can imagine. Like as Christians, we should desire nothing less than that kingdom. That's the good life. And so this young man comes up to Jesus and he's got some questions about the kingdom, about the good life in the kingdom. Jesus actually ends up, start, he ends up talking about the economics of the kingdom. So, look at his interaction starting in verse 16. I want you to see what Jesus surfaces here in this guy's life. Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus is always God-centered. He's always centered on his Father. There's only one who's good. God is good. Why are you asking me about this? He's the good one. There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments of this good God. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And a summary of those five commandments that he just said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, went away sad. See, money's emotional, for he had great possessions. He had many possessions. Did you notice the nature of his question in verse 16, that first verse? He asks a question about doing and a question about having. He says, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? So he treats eternal life as if if it's a commodity, as if it's something he can acquire. I mean, he's a guy who's used to doing whatever it takes to have whatever he wants. He's used to having. And Jesus, I would like to add one more thing to my list of having eternal life. Can you help me with this? What what do I need to do? He's a businessman. He's a man of action. What do I need to do? And so Jesus says to him, very simply, well, just keep the commandments. And Jesus is not being a smart aleck here. That is actually the way to life, truly. Keep the commandments of God, and you will enter life. Jesus is saying, just do that. And so the guy says, well, which ones? And when he does, Jesus plays along. Jesus doesn't say, well, how about all of them? He just says, well, no, let me give you five. And he gives them, the, he gives them commandments five through nine of the Ten Commandments. Uh, these are some of what we would call the horizontal commandments. They, they relate to our relationship with one another. Uh, and then he sums them up with a little summary, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't deal with commandments one through four of the Ten Commandments. Those are the ones that deal with our relationship with God. Just, he just says, just keep the ones that deal with loving, you know, love other people 
in exactly the same way that you love yourself. And I look at this guy just for, you know, a few verses here, and I'm thinking, that guy has never loved anyone as much as he loves himself. But his answer to, to Jesus is, you know, check, I, I did that. I've done that. Is there any, do I lack anything else here? What else do I need to do? And at that point, Jesus has got him right where he wants him. Now Jesus can get to the heart of the matter in this guy's life. And Jesus, man, he goes to work like a surgeon. I want you to watch how precise he is in verse 21. Uh, John Calvin said about verse 21 that Jesus, Jesus points out this guy's particular disease as if he were touching an ulcer with his finger. It's like Jesus kind of, it's like, does that hurt? Ow! The guy is like, how did you know that that's where it was? Verse 21, if you want to be perfect, Jesus says to the guy, if you want to be complete, is what that means, if you want to be fully mature, then sell what you possess and give to the poor and come and follow me. Translation, give up your God and make me God. That's what Jesus is saying to the man. And the young man went away sad because he had many possessions. And we might say it better, many possessions had him, right? He was owned by what he owned. And the sobering thing about this is that this is the only time in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus' call to discipleship is refused. Usually when Jesus would call them into discipleship, people would drop their nets, they'd run after him, they'd, they'd follow him immediately. This is the only time that the guy says, no thanks. And what prevented him from following Jesus was possessions stuff, money. It's like, it's like there's this spiritual demonic power uh, in what he owns. It's like he is possessed by his possessions. It's got this, this, it's enslaving him. He's not a free man. It's an old English proverb that says, it's hard to have a great estate and not fall in love with it. It's hard to have a great estate and not fall in love with it. The idol in this guy's life was having. He had lots. He was acquiring so that he could have more, and he wanted to have eternal life. His idol was possessions. His God was money. He was willing to pay homage to God. He was willing to to try to do some good stuff and keep away from the major sins, but he was not willing to call God God in his life. And he thought he was keeping the commandments, but he was actually breaking the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And when you break that commandment, you're going to break all the other ones. Because the way to keeping the commandments is faith faith in the one true God, in God our Savior. He's breaking that one. And I love how Jesus doesn't confront him directly with that. Jesus doesn't go full frontal assault on him and say, hey man, keeping the first commandment, because the guy would have been like, oh yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I love God. Yes, I sh- certainly am keeping. Jesus kind of comes around to the side and, you know, right hooks him. Wham! Sell your stuff and give it to the poor. And he's like, wait, what? And at that point, he can't deny that he's serving a different God than the one true God. All that this guy heard was sell your stuff. And he missed the part about come follow me. See, his hope was, was in what he had not in what he might have uh, through Jesus. Jesus, I love you, but don't mess with my stuff. I'm just looking for a ticket to heaven here. I'm just talking about future life. Do not mess with my stuff, Jesus. 
And the sad thing is, who knows the adventure this guy missed out on by not going with Jesus? See, if you end up making money your God, then you actually don't end up getting what you long for, what you really desire. If, if money is your God, you don't really get the good life. You just get a false version of the good life. I want to pause here just to get practical for a second. Because I think every follower of Jesus needs to, to wrestle with what Jesus commands the rich young man to do. Sell and give. Sell your stuff, give it away, right? So Jesus doesn't give that particular command to everyone, not even in the Gospels. And yet there's something true there for all of us as followers of Jesus. And here's the truth. Following Jesus will necessarily affect your assets. It will always affect your assets. Following Jesus will bring about economic change in your life. Otherwise, you're not following Jesus. Because economic change in your life is one of the things that most points to redirected love, redirected trust, away from self and to Jesus. And so would you, in the next four weeks, be willing to do some honest heart evaluation when it comes in heart inventory as it relates to your money and your stuff? Like, would you look at your spending, credit card, mortgage, entertainment, clothing, whatever you spend money on? Would you look at your saving, your investing? Would you look at your giving? And would you ask yourself, what do these things say about what I desire, my vision of the good life? What do these things say about what I'm trusting in? You know, what do these things uh, reveal uh, about me and if, if, if my heart in some way is serving money? These are good questions to ask yourself. Now, if you find that you are serving money in some way, what do you do about it? Uh, or if money is one of the many gods in your pantheon of false gods that's easy, that are e- you find it easy to run to, what do you do? What, what could bring about change in your life that you would let go of your possessions and go with Jesus? Right? Seems really difficult. Let's read on in verse 23. It wouldn't be natural... Uh, to let go of our stuff. Most of us are holding on to our stuff like a ninja death grip, right? We're not letting go of that stuff, man. Uh, Verse 23, how would we change? How's this rich young man going to change? Actually, the story seems to get worse for him uh, before it gets better. And Jesus, verse 23, and Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, we will not give up our possessions. We will not give up our way of life naturally. Right? In fact, the more we have, the less likely we are to give up our stuff, to give up our way of life. In fact, Jesus says it's impossible. It's impossible to do so. And he uses this whole camel, eye of a, eye of a needle illustri- to illustrate it, right? He's talking about a literal camel and a literal needle. So if you were going to take a camel, literally, and pass it through the eye of a needle, literally, what would need to happen? You would have to have a miraculous transformation of either the camel 
or the needle or that thing ain't happening. That's what Jesus is saying here. What type of transformation would have to happen in the life of a person to free them from their addiction to acquisition, from their addiction to wealth, from their addiction to stuff? Miraculous. You know who Jesus is talking about in verse 23 and 24 when he talks about rich people? You know who he's talking about? You and me. Us. We should, not, we should not read this and say, well, I'm not rich, so this does not apply to me. You and I are wealthier than most people in the world and most people who've ever lived in human history. According to the World Bank, 1.1 billion people live on less than a dollar a day. I can't even make my coffee budget with that, right? I need a dollar eighty-nine a day for tall drip at Starbucks. The global median income is $1,225 per year. So if you make more than $1,200 a year, you're in the top 50% in the world. If you make $34,000 per year as a single person, you are in the top 1% of earners in the the entire world. So if you're making $35,000 a year, you are rich. And you're like, what? I don't feel rich. If you eat three meals a day, if you have more than five changes of clothes, if you can spend money on entertainment, if you can go to college, if you can go to grad school, you're wealthy. You have many things. The question is, do those many things have you? That's the question Jesus is asking. And in verse 25, Jesus, or the disciples asked Jesus, who then can be saved? And that's, that's, that's the question. And Jesus says, well, it's impossible with man. Jesus wants everyone involved, the rich man, the disciples, and us to come to grips with the impossibility of saving ourselves. If we are to enter life, we must be changed. We must be transformed. We must be made new. And it's impossible for us to make that change. Only God can. That change, Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. The only one who can take... uh, gain and goods and and stuff and money off the throne of our life and put God, the one true God on it, is God himself. He's the only one that can make that transformation. What the gospel wants us to, to see is our total inability to change ourselves, but God's great ability to change us. And you know that God wants to change us for our good. He doesn't want to leave us where we are. Jesus, when he was talking to this young man about entering life, he didn't want to just give him a ticket to heaven in the future. He actually wanted to change his life then and there, right? He wasn't saying, hey, all right, here's your entrance later in life. Now get back to pursuing your, you know, wealth. Get back to your own thing and pursuing your desires, and later you'll enter life. That's not what he was talking about. Jesus wanted to give that guy a new God now new desires now, a new way of life now. He wanted to set him free from his enslavement to wealth now. The only way it was going to happen, though, is that the guy followed Jesus. If the guy believed the good news, the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. So don't miss this. What did Jesus tell the man to do? He told him, sell everything you got and give it to the poor. Give your all for those who have nothing. Who's the only one who's done that perfectly? Who's the only one who's given out 
infinite wealth and riches away to those who had nothing to give. It's Jesus. And only by attaching ourselves to this one by faith can we dethrone the God of money and possessions in our life. It's the only way. The gospel is believe in the one who sold everything he had to set you free. Believe in the one who became poor to make you rich. It's the only way to dethrone money in our life. It's our only hope for real change. I want you to notice one last little cool thing in the text here. Uh, Look starting in verse 27. I want you to notice um, the wideness of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is even greater than we think it's going to be. Verse 27, then Peter said, to, said in reply, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter's asking a question of having too. You know, what's in it for us? Jesus is so patient with him. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, literally in the, in the regeneration, in the new Genesis, the new heavens, the new earth, when, when Jesus sets up his kingdom in full, this is our future hope, in that time, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne because he's the king of the kingdom, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, that's properties, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Everyone who gives up that which is valuable to follow Jesus ends up gaining many times more. You see how how wide the gospel is? How amazing the gospel is? Jesus is saying, not only do you get me, which is your highest treasure, but I will also make you wealthy. I will give you the good life. I'm going to give you riches, but just not in the way you're anticipating. I mean, the gospel is so wide. He gives us our deepest desires, the very thing we long for. I mean, I can attest just personally that following Jesus has made me a wealthy man. A wealth of family and friends, a wealth of experiences, a wealth of purpose in life, a wealth in knowing God, knowing Jesus himself, which has made me the wealthiest person I can imagine. I mean, I shudder to think what I would have missed out on had I declined to follow Jesus, right? I probably wouldn't know any of you, but I'm a rich person because I do, right? Jesus gives us not only himself, but the very thing we long for. Jesus actually made this same promise of wealth to the young man. I don't know if you caught it in verse 21 when he said, hey, sell your, sell your stuff and give to the poor. What did he say? He said, then you will have. You will have treasure in heaven. You will be rich. You will have wealth. And also, you, when you follow me, you'll have me, uh, the highest treasure. Jesus wasn't asking the, the young man to become poor. He was just asking the man to redefine what it means to be rich. But to do so, the man needed to realize his own poverty, his own own inability, and need to turn to Jesus. And you know, the call is the same to us. Realize your poverty, turn to Jesus, and, and, and follow him and enjoy the riches of life with him. I want to end by giving us some redemptive application In other words, if Jesus has freed us, if he has redeemed us uh, from the love of money, from serving money as our God, how do we walk in that freedom? Like, what are some things we can do to live out 
the way He's redeemed us in that way. So, what are, what are some things we can do to protect us from temptation to serving money in our life? And I want, I want to give you two things. And the first is this. We need to cultivate uh, generosity. And, and by cultivate, I just mean work the soil of your life uh, to, uh, such that it can, your life can, can uh, produce generosity. You know, pull some weeds, plant some seeds, water, uh, tend the soil so that the generosity might grow. Generosity is, real, is not really about how much money you have. Generosity is a state of the heart, isn't it? And so, generosity is actually something that we begin to cultivate in our life when we don't have as much money. Uh, because one day when you get more wealth, uh, you, that doesn't necessarily make you more generous. That just makes you more wealthy, right? It doesn't mean you just all of a sudden, get, you know, generosity doesn't come over you because you have more money. But have you cultivated it in your life throughout your life? Uh, Tim Keller says that the only way that we can be free from the power of money and be sure that we're free from the power of money and not self-deluded about it is to give money away so much uh, that we lower our living standards. That's really challenging. And that means different things to, to each of us in this room. Well, what, you know, we need that kind of practical challenge, though. Otherwise, we're going to dull the sharp words that Jesus has said to us uh, today. What does it look like to give regularly uh, to the church, to the poor, to missions, to kingdom-type things, to the establishment of justice on the earth? What does it look like to give regularly and generously to these things in such a way that we feel it cut into our lifestyle, into our way of life? Might cost you a night out to dinner. Might cost you a new outfit. It might mean that you take less expensive vacations. It might mean that you drive a less expensive car. It might mean that you hold on to that old furniture longer than you wanted to, or that old television longer than you wanted to. See, Jesus, He has redeemed our desires. He's reshaping and reforming our desires and aiming them towards His kingdom, and now it's our great joy. Uh, it's our great freedom to, to direct our resources toward His kingdom. But generosity takes practice. Giving generously and sacrificially is probably not natural for most of us. And so, that's why I say cultivate it, practice it. And the second thing is we need to cultivate thankfulness in our life. And here's what I mean. I'll just illustrate from my own life. It's a trend I've noticed in my life in, you know, probably recent years, and that is that I complain about our house a lot. Like, I'll get home, and the first thing I notice is what's wrong, Right? Stuff that's broken, stuff that needs replacing, stuff that feels old. And I notice those things, and then my family can feel my discontentment, and, and then I just kind of, bleh, lack of thankfulness all over them, when instead I should be thankful, right? I, I should be thankful that, that, we, that I live in a large house that's climate-controlled, that has refrigeration and indoor plumbing, that has leather couches, comfortable beds, that's full of hugs and smiles and laughs, and conversation around a table at dinner that's piled high with food. I should be thankful about these things. The problem with thankfulness, though, is it's a lot like generosity. It sometimes doesn't come natural. It, it, it doesn't just come over you. It takes practice. It takes cultivation. And I think you practice it a lot of times by faith, meaning sometimes you have to practice thankfulness when you're not feeling it. And this happened to me just the other day. Um, 
I recently killed some of my lawn uh, because I put down the wrong fertilizer on my lawn because I am brilliant. And um, uh, so Tuesday night, I was mowing my half-dead lawn because some of it's growing and some of it has to be mowed. And I was just angry, right? I am walking behind my mower just fuming. I'm angry that my neighbor's lawns are so green. I'm angry that my lawnmower is old and it's blowing blue smoke in my face. I'm angry at my fence that needs repair. And I'm just mad. And I'm just back and forth (laughs) across my yard, mad. And at one point, it's like God said to me, seriously, man? You mad? You mad, bro? (laughs) Like, seriously? Like, am I not good? Like, you should be thanking me. I thought, man, that's true. I should be thanking God. And I had this moment of begrudging repentance and faith where I turned in my heart and said, I'm going to thank God as I walk back and forth in my yard. And I started thanking God for specific things. And it wasn't like this happy Christian thankfulness. I was not singing praise songs, right? I'm still kind of upset. But I started thanking God. And, each, and after a while, it, I, I began to realize that each step I took Each step I took represented part of God's creation that He has entrusted to me to steward, right? Because He's good. I mean, did I even have a yard to mow, right? Even though it's half brown, (laughs) I got a yard. And I began to think, no, God is good. Not just because He gave me a yard, He's good because He cares about my character and He wants to reform and reshape my desires towards his kingdom and away from my little kingdom. I thought, God is good. You see how thankfulness works? Thankfulness begins to take the focus off of me and my stuff, and it puts it on God and his goodness. Thankfulness begins to realign my heart and my desires to God and his kingdom and away from my little tiny vision of the good life that is so anemic. We ought to cultivate thankfulness every day, even in the little things, because thankfulness is this gentle little reminder that Jesus is on the throne, not our stuff, not our possessions, not our money. All right, let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.